Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He grew up playing for Interclub and played for Team Ontario before joining the Waterloo Warriors, where he was a CIS All-Rookie and a big part of the rebuild at the Waterloo Warriors. He's been coaching with Predators and Scorpions lately and with Preds as a back-to-back national champion. Please welcome to the show my guy, Alex Boldma. Alex, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks. Thanks for calling me my guy. It's been way too long. I know we had you on Sharp Cuts. We haven't got a Passing Dimes, so welcome to the A-Show, if that joke still stands. I don't know if Garrett thinks that's funny or not, but... I appreciate that. I checked my uh, my history in Skype, and my last call was with you guys on Sharp Cuts. Nice. So, so you didn't delete it, or maybe your account stayed. But uh, yeah, anyways, back to you. Uh, I know I skipped over it in your intro, but let's start there. Uh, big guy in the Estonian world. Is that how you got into volleyball? Because obviously your siblings, I think you grew up with brothers. You played every sport. Your brother's really into hockey. I imagine you grew up playing hockey. But uh, was it the Estonian thing that really got you into volleyball? Yeah, I'd say like my older brother... Uh, so he played for like the Toronto Blues Club and then he went to play hum- at Humber. But he got into volleyball from the Estonian community. I don't really understand where it really came from, but all of like my parents' generation, at every Estonian event, there was a volleyball tournament. Like you'd have a folk dancing event in Chicago, but there'd be a volleyball tournament in parallel. Like my dad separated his shoulder playing volleyball, then had to folk dance with my mom the next hour. Like, it's such a weird kind of cultural thing. So just there's this Estonian volleyball stuff that happens. Uh, there's a fraternity uh, tournament every year uh, where, like, Tom Sura's, like, uncle and dad play. They're, like, our rivals for many years. Um, yeah, so, like, that just kind of cre- uh, creeped into Marcus playing volleyball. I was more of a hockey guy, so my younger brother Michael and I would play hockey, like, all the time in the backyard rink and all this kind of stuff. But then I realized pretty quickly I wasn't good enough to go anywhere. I'm like, okay, how am I going to continue to play sport? And so switched over to volleyball, um, kind of following my older brother. And our program at York Mills Collegiate was really good. So the coaches there, like Mira Wong and Imanz Koskins, they had like Steve Kung years before I was there. So Steve Kung played like for U of T and he played beach and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the Estonian thing and the high school thing just kind of merged together to have some really good coaches and and people in the volleyball community, and that kind of got me into it, I guess. Yeah, just to name drop quickly, I know you mentioned the Sora family. So obviously, uh, I think Hiller's more well-known as Ruby's dad right now, but obviously he was a great volleyball player in his day. So you got the Sora family, the Valius, Nylander, Alicia Lidhams, Landis Doyle. Like, when you guys go, there's some serious ballers there, right? Yeah, and there's a bunch of American Estonians, too, that are quite good and played kind of college ball down there. Um, but yeah, I'd say the big names would be the, the Sura brothers, like Hiller and, and Peter, and then now their their kids. So, and, and then throughout that, they started a volleyball camp. Um, we have an Estonian camp just north of Toronto, and I think Hiller and Peter and a bunch of the Estonian guys that they all won nationals together with, like back in the day all their kids were the same age, like Tom's age and and Ruby's age. And so I started volleyball camp for Estonian kids. And so I used to coach there for eight, nine years. Um, And so that's even grown that Estonian volleyball even more. So it's kind of funny how it all worked out, but it is a really popular sport with the kids um, and the Estonian community. Awesome. Awesome. So you mentioned hockey. I think, was it around maybe your OHL draft year that you realized maybe you weren't going to reach the highest level? Like, and that's why you switched to volleyball. Cause I think you started playing club in 17 year, right? So that was it right around like your draft year. You kind of realized maybe post-secondary or junior A wasn't going to be a thing in hockey. Yeah. Like I wasn't even, even close to that. Like I was kind of, I was playing single A. I was maybe going to go play double A and it's already too late. Um, and I wasn't good enough. Um, and I wanted to play something and volleyball was something that was kind of on my radar. Um, so yeah, it was, I think, yeah, grade 10, I quit playing hockey and then grade 11, 17, I started playing club, um, which is, I guess, pretty late, but uh, a lot of the guys at Waterloo I played with started really late, like 17, 18 usually. So yeah, kind of a late bloomer, but uh, uh, like I said, I had some really good coaches in high school and then had some really good coaches at Interclub as well. So I was really fortunate to um, kind of catch up pretty quickly. Yeah, I know some listeners might say, well, Interclub, I know that club doesn't exist anymore, so they're kind of going, what's this? But uh, I think at its peak, you guys finished second at Provincials, and it would have been you, Will Sidgwick, who went on to play at Queens and did some uh, international stuff with Team Canada on the beach. Uh, Michael Meitzen and Marvin were also all rookies with you, I think, in your OUA year. Um, Connor, I think, was in the middle, and Jack Creighton, I think, went on to play at Western a little bit. Western. So. 
Uh, yeah. uh, Kyle Perkins was another outside. He went on to play uh, at Seneca College. So, I mean, you had a pretty good crew there. I think in your 18 year, maybe Blues ended, and that's why Mightson and those guys jumped over. But anyways, just talk about uh, Derek Poon and Mike Murphy and just the, the group of boys you had there because it was quite the 18 year. Yeah, so like in my 17 year, we were like a tier two team. And we're just kind of starting to build something with like those um, – uh, you know, Will and Cole and Kenny and those guys. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. So the, the Toronto Blues team folded. I'm not really sure what happened because they had a strong program in, in years that were uh, older than us. But they folded, so we got, you know, half of their team and in some really critical positions as well. Um, and then we just started to be like top five, top eight, kind of in, in 18U. And then we went on a run at Provincials where we beat the Mavericks, who ended up winning Nationals that year in the quarters. We ended up losing to TJ and a bunch of guys on um, on Forest City in the finals. Um, and then we kind of lost to the quarters of Nationals, which is also pretty good. Um, but I just, yeah, Derek Poon and, and, and Murph, they, uh, they just like had fun with us. Like we had a good group and a good um team morale team culture um couple intense guys couple of kind of jokester guys and it just it was kind of like a cinderella story i mean i know we didn't win provincials or win nationals but i think we exceeded expectations um for sure for that year and um yeah we had we had a lot of fun along the way with those guys so with you knowing you wanted to play at the next level and obviously very strong academically uh, where else were you looking? I know you finally settled on Waterloo. Was there anything else kind of on your radar? Because you had a good club career in 18U. You were a Team O guy. Was there many opportunities or was the, the Waterloo Warriors rebuild really the right spot for you? Yeah. It's kind of funny because I, I kind of came out of nowhere, I guess. So early in the year, no one was interested in me at all. And so I was just sending out emails. Just, hey, like, do you think I can make your, your practice squad? Like, my goal at that point in time was like, can I be on a team? Like that was, that was it. And most of the responses from the coaches were pretty generic. I think just, I didn't know who I was. Um, but Chris, Chris came to a tournament in Niagara or something, some random high school tournament to see me and to meet my high school coaches. Um, and just, he showed, I guess the most interest um, but I, I was looking at engineering. So I was looking at Queens, U of T, Western and Waterloo and trying to kind of balance, like, does, will I make the team? And is this program good for me academically? And am I away from home, but maybe not too far away from home? Um, so yeah, I, I guess in the end it was kind of between when things got kind of uh, progressed a bit throughout the year and I got better and I became uh, an all-star and Timo and whatnot. Like that kind of stuff was unfolding. There was more interest from, from Western and U of T and Waterloo. So those are kind of my last three options. And I really, I mean, really connected with Chris and, um, and, you know, the other coaches were great too, obviously, but the program at Waterloo was really important for me. Engineering has co-op and all this kind of stuff, a lot of opportunities. So it ended up just being the perfect balance of the volleyball, the schooling and the kind of career prospects afterwards. Um, and yeah, somehow I fit in really well at Waterloo and uh, Chris really believed in me. So it ended up being the, the right choice for sure. So. Yeah. And I don't want to skip over team Ontario too quickly. I know we got a lot to get to, but uh, was TJ on your team? I'm trying to think who your age group would have been. I know uh, you were a beach guy as well, and it was really popular in your age group to do both. But for team O that year, uh, was that Ray Zito's year? Like, I'm trying to think who else would have been on your squad. Yeah, yeah. So, so TJ was was on the team. Mike Denton was our backup setter. Um, then we had like Jory Mantha, um, Andrew McWilliam. Um, we had uh, Jeremy Lorty in the middle, Phil James in the middle, Mark Wilson in the middle, who's gone and played pro now too. Um, yeah, we had we had a bunch of like. Uh, Justin Scapanello was there too. So we had a really good, good squad. Um, yeah. And that was interesting. Cause like, again, I was such a newbie to volleyball and interclub, you know, was kind of this unique team. So going into high performance center, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a tryout. I was like, mom, like I got an email saying I can go to this high performance center. Can I go? And I just showed up there. My buddy dropped me off and I was just like, Hey, and then like tell me this is a tryout for team Ontario. I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. I don't know what that is. Um, so I just, I didn't know anyone like I, uh, Zach Doherty, I played with him for three years at Waterloo. He's a year younger than me. 
we remember that both of us were like we didn't know anyone we were like the losers and we would like we went on the bowling event together like it was us and some buried guys who just like we weren't the cool kids at all and didn't know anyone so it was a a pretty whirlwind like couple weeks of like meeting tons of people meeting tons of coaches and then making the provincial team and then playing with them um yeah it was super fresh to me i just didn't know anything about volleyball <laughs> So that's, that's awesome. Awesome. But did that really set you up for your first year in the OUA? Like were you expecting to play your first year when you got to Waterloo? No, I, like I said, like months earlier, I was just hoping to make like a redshirt position. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm actually going to go play volleyball at university. That's sweet. Um, yeah. And then like just that, that intensity of training and the, um, you know, the additional technical training uh, with the provincial team was just so important for me to like make some really substantial gains on some simple things like blocking um, and attacking and things like that. And so going into Waterloo, didn't really know where I would fit um, and then started for most of the year, um, which was just a pleasant surprise for me. But I've always said this like, I ended up, you know, being a starter for the majority of my career at Waterloo. Um, and we were like, you know, top two, top three in the province for my last two years. But I probably wouldn't have made the court on a bunch of other teams that were below us. So I just like fit what the team needed at Waterloo. And it was just uh, really fortunate. Um, and obviously, Chris has a huge part of that, too. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't think I'd start my first year. So it was a pleasant surprise. And was that Chris's first year or second year when you came in um, to the second program? Year. Yeah. So, so the year before, they, they we had like the oldest team in the OUA uh, because a bunch of guys who were doing their masters and stuff who played with the coach before Fernando Pardo quit the team just because of you know how the team was run and whatnot. And so they all came rushing back when Chris took up the program. So they ended up like losing to Queens in the semis, like 15, 13 in the, the fifth set. Like it was like, they had a really good year going from like, Oh, and 20 to like almost making the finals just because they had a bunch of guys who went to school there, but didn't want to play for the old coach. So, so yeah, yeah, it was Chris's second year where I came in. And yeah. What was it like? Uh, obviously it was before your time, but you are entering a program who lost to RMC, I think was like the last big knock against the program. But, uh, when you get there, uh, man, a ton of first years were like, uh, yourself, uh, Greg Vivian would eventually contribute to the program. Fido was very young. Um, Tyler Motherwell was very young. Um, Abdo, James Evans, Scott Thompson, like the, the core was really there, but, uh, not to sugarcoat it too much, I guess, uh, you guys were pretty bad. Like, I, I think the program was definitely learning, uh, Jordan Dick, like I'm recognizing a lot of the names that by like second, third, fourth year, you guys were pretty legit and competitive, but, uh, some of those early practices in your first year must've been pretty rough. eh? Yeah. I mean, like it was definitely rougher before I got there. Um, cause like I said, there were some of these kind of older guys who came back and then start and Chris started to change the culture immediately. Um, so it was, it was still pretty competitive when I got there. I think I, like, I just missed that window by a year, but you're right. Like my first and second year, we had my first year, maybe had like seven, eight guys in first and second year. My second year, once all these older guys graduated, I think like 80% of our team was like first and second years. And we were really like a bunch of like nobody's ex hockey players is kind of the vibe of our team. Like, uh, James Evans, uh, he went on to be an OUA all-star and he played one year of club. Uh, he was a hockey guy and he kind of just gritted his way to a starting position and, and did really well. Dickie, uh, Jordan Dick, same thing. Tyler Motherwell, um, played with the Toronto blues, but didn't play. So he was a walk on and he just like, just, just worked and worked and worked and became like a top blocker in the, in the OUA. But like, it was basically a bunch of like nobody's with like a chip on their shoulder, I think. And so we just like competed and competed in practice and trained really hard off, off the court and built something kind of out of nothing. I think, um, when you talk about like skill set on paper, um, and obviously Chris was just building that program and he's a huge part of that. But I think we're really proud of those years of like, not a lot of maybe skill and athleticism, but a lot of pretty good results, um, from that work and in Chris's leadership. So yeah, it was, uh, 
an interesting transition time for sure. And how did you uh, personally deal with the demands? Because obviously you're a varsity athlete, you're contributing on the court, uh, but just in your program. And again, for context for the listeners, there's people in your program who don't do anything other than school. And sometimes they struggle with the workload. And here you are trying to uh, have a little bit of a social life, be a varsity athlete, but still get it done academically and set yourself up for a good co-op. So uh, how did your time management contribute to this? Or did you ever feel like you were struggling a little bit? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Like, um, you know, waterloo engineering definitely is quite challenging and it's hard to get in. And even when you get in, a lot of people actually fail out, but that's uh, maybe, maybe pretty rare, but I think, I think overall I handled it quite well. I think I've always been really busy, um, and good at managing a lot of things. I don't spend a ton of time like watching TV and lounging around. Um, I'm usually kind of go, go, go. The first year was quite challenging because like my course load was like 40 hours a week. Um, so you're just in class like eight to five and then you go to practice and that's kind of your life. Um, but I had a couple engineering buddies, um, Spencer and Ben that really helped me come exam time, like catch up and, 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 and get through things. Um, but I think that the most challenging parts were like in season midterm, time because in in engineering you have what they call a hell week which is an exam a day for the whole week so i remember in one of my early years like chris looked at me and he's like hey don't come to practice tomorrow because i was just like so exhausted from all-nighters and whatnot that's the first time i missed the practice was when chris said do not come back tomorrow and i remember we played a game at wealth that friday at the end of my hell week so i had five exams or six exams in five days you know, minimal sleep. And I was dating a girl at Guelph at the time and she saw me for the game. She's like, Whoa, you look bad. And I'm like, that's great to hear right before a game is how shitty I look. <laughs> um, so like the exam times, like finals seasons, uh, on hiatus where it's done already, but midterms were, were quite challenging. But I think my most challenging term was I did a co-op term at Toyota where you got to be there before seven every morning. Um, and so you do co-op and volleyball together, depending on what semester you're on. So that was challenging to come home from practice at like 10, 30, 11, eat, relax a bit, fall asleep, get up at five, go to work. Like I remember that being probably my most exhausting term. It wasn't necessarily hitting the books. It was just working a full-time job early mornings and training um, and, and playing. So there's definitely a couple challenges here and there, but um I'd say in general, my volleyball suffered a bit from my schooling and my schooling suffered a bit from my volleyball. I was kind of spread too thin, but overall it was, it was doable. And how did you feel uh, as the program started to progress? Because obviously you enter a program that in, in recent memory had gone a, a big 0-4 uh, and now your team who's uh, winning quarterfinals uh, and actually the one year I'm trying to remember, it might've been your last year uh, beat Mac and Mac was with the Danny year, the Jory, uh, Austin Campion Smith. Like, I think they were going on an undefeated tear and you guys took them down at home. So what was it like personally for you to come into a program that was pretty bare bones? I mean, the previous coach didn't leave Chris in a good situation. And when you leave it, the table was set for them to kind of take the next step. I, I know the generation right after you, uh, like Eric Woolley would have competed at nationals and stuff, but you guys really took the program from really nothing to something. Yeah, like, I think looking back now, like, we're all very proud of that. And a bunch of us are still best friends to this day because of, you know, those five years together. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird with success that way. Like, you know, coming into Waterloo, if we were a middle of range team and I kind of played here and there, I might have been happy in, 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 in one world. But getting there and winning and getting better and getting better – um, but never making that leap. Like we just ran into Western every time in the semis and just had very poor performances and still like haunts us all to this day of like, all we wanted to do was like, you know, medal in the OUA, get to nationals and and see what happens. Um, if we can, you know, outgrid a team or something like that. And we just never got there. And it's like, still to this day, it's like, it just kind of crushes you. And I know Western went on and medal both those years. Uh, I think a silver and a bronze at nationals, like they were a phenomenal team, but we just, we just knew that we had 
it to get to to nationals and we just never could execute and that just is just like crushing um but that being said like that year yeah we beat mac two out of three times we played them i think we matched up well with mac where we didn't match up well with western um but yeah those are some like of the best feeling wins you know at home upsetting um upsetting mac and, and getting ranked in the top 10 in the cis and all this kind of stuff um you'll definitely cherish those, but it just kind of, you know, it still leaves a sour taste in your mouth where you couldn't get it done when it mattered in playoffs. Um, but, you know, as you kind of get older and realize like, Hey, we actually did a lot of really good things and we got the program really far and it feels really good. That's for sure. And just comment a little bit about, uh, obviously you're going through it as a player, but just everything surrounding the program. So, um, Obviously, Chris, very, very experienced coach. But when he got the Waterloo gig, he was kind of known as like a good high school coach slash club guy. And I know he'd done like Canada games and thing, but really like he was a Goddard high school coach who did really well. And all of a sudden he gets the university gig and, and takes off. But uh, one of Chris's strengths is he always surrounds himself with good people, whether it was uh, keeping a guy like Dave Steiner on who graduated around the boys or Shane White comes in or Luke Snyder. Um, it just seems like there was a commitment to a system and uh, – who knows what actually happened? I guess it depends who you ask, but a, a talented guy like Theodore leaves the team and you guys mm -hmm. still are successful or maybe even more successful than you were with a guy who was probably arguably a, a future all Canadian. So just talk about how Chris was able to install a, a culture, but also a system with all these other coaches he was assembling. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, a couple pieces to that. So, you know, with the assistant coaches, you know, there's a lot of people who helped out. Um, Yes, like Steiner's a really good friend of mine, and he was he added something else from like a game planning perspective and like a stats perspective um, to the coaching staff. Um, yeah, Luke was awesome for you know the the serve receive and the defense, um, and, and Shane coming in with his uh, experience and expertise also just contributed immensely to to our team. Um, but the fundamental kind of thing that Chris did was he just established the culture. Um, and we had one rule and he, the one rule was respect the program. And he, he did it by, by showing up. Like he wasn't getting paid much at all. Like he's basically volunteering. He's volunteering up all his weekends. He's got young grandkids at home. He's missing birthdays. He's there. And, and there were some times where I remember, Early in my career at Waterloo, we had a very poor showing at Western, I think. And Chris kind of just brought us into a room and actually came to tears. And he's just like, guys, like, I'm here doing everything I can. I'm missing my family events. I'm putting everything into this. And I feel like that's not being reciprocated. Um, and the boys, like, cleaned it up, had a great week of practice. I think we won the next game and whatnot. But it just kind of showed, like, Chris leading by example um, and just putting – his heart and soul into, into the team. Um, so that like fundamental, like respect the program was just the kind of underlying rule for the team. And he didn't need to yell and scream at us. Maybe sometimes he, he should have, or he could have, but in general, he's, uh, he was very much, um, a believer in be, us being intrinsically motivated and picking the right guys, which kind of, you know, maybe goes into the, the conversation with, with, with Fido as well is like, um, yeah, phenomenal, um, player, a big part of our team, you know, and maybe not gelling with the guys off the court as much as maybe someone else. And, and we had the guys kind of on the bench to come in specifically James, James came in and was an OUA all-star that year to end. I think he was right there with Fido and just Fido was such a special player that it's hard not to, hard to take him off the court really. Um, and again, we just had guys who were there who worked hard and who were a part of the team and, and wanted to be there. And that's just contributed to our success, even with losing such a important player. So, yeah, we just had like just this awesome culture around the team. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd almost call it like a blue collar culture of like, bring your lunch pail and get to work kind of thing. Um, it wasn't fancy. We didn't have lots of money as a program. Um, I had a pregame nap in a bathtub at a hotel room one time in Winnipeg because we only had two hotel rooms for the whole team for that day before a game. Like 
just like funny stuff like that. Um, just like not a lot of budget to work with, um, and still kind of getting it done. So, um, again, a lot of tire pumping for Chris, but also for all the guys I played with who kind of bought into that. Um, like, like Tyler Motherwell, um, and, and James Evans and St. Abdo and all these guys just like really just took it and ran with it. Um, and it was really special. Yeah. And when you say connect with the guys, um, how did you make an effort to do that as one of the leaders on the team? Because I imagine, like you said, you got a, this intense class schedule, you go to practice. How do you make time to go, I don't know, go watch the hockey game or go for wings or make time to connect with guys because everybody's busy doing other things. It's not like you have a light course load. So uh, how did you do that team building stuff where it didn't happen? Um it didn't happen formally where you guys would do these team events. It was happening organically where you guys wanted to be around each other. But I'm just wondering, how did you find the time for that? Yeah. Well, I basically hit pause on the books until midterm time and I hit pause on the books until finals and just crammed really well. Um, so practically that's how we did it. But, um, we, we had a lot of guys who were, who wanted to be around the guys. Um, like it, it was rare to have, um, teammates who were kind of like not involved in team parties and, and team events. Um, and like I said, like the older guys before me kind of added that into the culture of doing the Halloween party every year with the women's team, um, having, you know, a Super Bowl event with the guys and things like that. And especially in Frosh week and, you know, the first week before these, uh, you know, practice starts, just getting guys to come out and, and get to know each other. Um, so we just had a, a really good team culture off the court too. Um, and I don't know if that's a part of recruiting, like something I had to ask Chris, but just the types of guys we had just gelled and wanted to be together. Um, so it was hard sometimes, like I have an exam the next day, but it's Super Bowl Sunday uh, and the team's going. So having to kind of balance that sometimes is challenging, but uh no, we just had a lot of really good leaders um, before me and during my time, um, which was just awesome. Now, one thing I think the the program deserves credit for with uh, the rebuild going from a mid-pack team to a, a Final Four team was uh, the offense you guys installed and just a commitment to the philosophy. But I'm curious, as an outside hitter and having not a limited background, but I, I was around Interclub and we weren't running it that fast. I'm curious how you adapted where it was either Chris's idea or he brings in a guy like Shane who knows how to sling it. Were you ever like hesitant being like, guys, this is way too fast because when you guys uh, started running it, uh, I mean the, the, the lame expression coaches use is like speed kills, but it can't kill you. There was times it was killing you where you guys were running it so fast. So I'm curious, what was the practice gym? Like what was the sales pitch from the coaches being like, we don't care what happens in preseason. We want to ride the wave and make sure that we can sling it by like January, February, March. Yeah, I mean, I think like Chris, Chris started the the fast offense stuff like when kind of early on when I was there, um, and then Shane just kind of came and added on to that um, and really sped things up. And I know it's gone way faster since I left. I think for me, it was necessary as a undersized, medium athletic left side. I kind of need that speed, uh, so I just needed to figure that one out. Yeah, I I, th I think it was just that foresight of like, we got a plan to peak at the end of the year and there's going to be some bumps along the way, but we got to commit to it. Um, and if we're struggling the first couple games, like unless it's going to cost us, like we don't, we don't hit the panic button. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think it was pretty critical for our success. Um, and it really, really hinged on our service team. So I'd say overall, we were a pretty good service team team. Um, and when that broke down, then our office kind of offense kind of broke down, um, which got us in trouble sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think it's just having kind of like a vision and committing to it um, enough to see it through um, as long as it makes sense. And I think for us, it made sense, uh, especially for someone like me and especially for a team that didn't have big outsides uh, for a while there. So now, is there any truth that uh, because you guys are so academically gifted or it is a focus uh, that in your practice gym, like teaching it is at a premium? Because I'm just curious, looking at your development over your university career, you got really good. Uh, James got really good. But even looking at like Jordan McConkie and his development, like you got guys coming in as like 
yeah, they were good, but I don't think anyone saw them as like future national team guys, right? So uh, I am curious, what was practice like? Or even when you guys look break down, uh, maybe first semester to second semester, there was games you would lose in first semester, and then you're beating that team in three or four in the second semester. I am curious, uh, what was the process of installing or talent ID or, or uh, talent development going on in the practice gym? Was it, is there any secret that we stereotype you Waterloo guys as smart, so therefore you, you learn volleyball over the course of the year too? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of the guys I played with, I would say they're academics. I think there's a bunch that aren't. Um, so it's just a mix of both. Um, but I, I think in general, like, um, guys, there wasn't a lot of messing around. Um, not, a, not a lot of like, like, there's like the bunch of jokesters on the team, but I mean, just like we were there for a reason. Guys are dialed in. No issue with like listening to the coaches. No issue with applying feedback, um, no issue with paying attention in video sessions. We had none of those like problems or challenges. Um, so I think the learning piece kind of came just to the team, um, just from the guys that were there and just the desire to get better. Um, like I said before, kind of trusting in the process, I think was important for us to, Hey, we'll beat this team next time. Cause we're building towards, us peaking as opposed to us trying to just be teams and not get better or establish the system. Um, so yeah, like I think I, th- I would say we're a pretty you know, academic and smart team, but um, I think we just had that desire to, to get better. And we had that plan in place as for kind of the national team guys, like, I mean, biggest thing from Waterloo has been the middles, like, like Jordan Dick and Jordan McConkey, like just Chris is an exceptional middles coach. Um, his philosophy and his attention to detail there, I think is, is incredible. I think every year I played our middles were top four, top five in blocks every single year. Um, and again, that was like his philosophy of like never guess. Cause if you're guessing, then we don't know our whole defense is kind of messed up now. So early in the year, we might not be getting touches because we're a little bit slow, but then if we stick with it and we work on that, then guys just close blocks, get touches, and our defense kind of settles in. So a part of our progression of the year was that offensive piece you talked about, but also our defense settling in and being very stable um, and, and transitioning well off that. So, um, yeah, I think we just kind of we grew as a team throughout the year and, and we learned, but Chris had some very specific things that he would say like are absolute necessary things, and we would stick to that until we got it. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think in sport, uh, trust the process has become a little bit uh, mainstream and a little bit abused, actually, if you ask me. But I am uh, curious, when you say you guys were able to stick to the process, is it because things were just like self-evident that you knew that when it worked, it really worked and you wanted to get it more consistent? Uh, Was it just Chris laying it out from day one and you guys just committed to it? Like, how do you... How do you trust the process and know it was going to pay off? Because looking back, it definitely did. I'm just curious when you're, I don't know, a 20-year-old guy being like, this is never going to work versus like, oh, we're losing games or, oh, maybe in second semester. Like, it's so far, it's so hard to look ahead sometimes and think like, oh, this will definitely pay off, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I I think a bit of it was self-evident and probably <laughs> a bit of it was we're a bunch of like ex-hockey players who maybe like shouldn't question Chris because he, you know, we've only been playing volleyball for two and a half years. Like, so who are we to like know what the next thing is in terms of defensive systems or what have you? Um, so maybe we were a bit naive in the sense of like, Hey, we're going to trust Chris and Shane and Luke and whatever completely because we don't have any other suggestions. Um, that might be a part of it, Josh. Uh, yeah. And uh, with you complimenting the middles there, definitely the middles definitely drove the bus for you guys. But with you getting so many digs in six, and I think uh, Eric did a phenomenal job, but there's also a little bit of a knock of that, like the way the funnel worked. I think he could have put a, a marginal libero there and they wouldn't have done as well as Eric, but I think they still would have got the job done. So knowing how good your block system was, were you guys giving feedback to the middles or was it just your job to go get the ball? Like I'm wondering with the team defense, uh, were the five, six and one guys able to get on the middles a little bit or they had a tough job and that was coach's job to get on them. Yeah. Like that uh, Willie, Willie was a phenomenal libero. Um, but you're right. Like our, our blocking system really funneled, uh, the ball to the right places. And I think like we didn't get on the middles again. This was like, like the first three months of the year, the middles would do like shoulder taps, which is like guy faces the wall. 
you tap a shoulder and they go and close that way or close that way. They do that every single practice. Um, and then they'd have a live setup and they do it every single practice um, over and over and over again. So there's no guessing and it was get moving fast, get moving fast. And so our middles just were phenomenal blockers. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so I never got on the middles because there wasn't a, you know, lean one way, lean another way. I mean, there's some tendencies, but again, Chris's philosophy was do not guess. That's your only rule is do not guess. If you're late, it's fine. If you're late, it's fine. And so that's probably what happened early in the year. So you're late, we're missing touches a little bit, but hey, by the end of the year, we're going to get that block, that touch, that dig, what have you. So that was just the only rule. And Chris establishes it, do not guess. That's it. And that's how we built a lot of success. Obviously had really athletic middles, um, but I thought that just made it very simple. And then the guys just had to get faster and close. That's just how it worked. So... Nice. So you graduate and obviously the the program rebuilt not only competitively, but I, I believe like the alumni thing took off where you guys don't even like, yes, there's an alumni volleyball game, but I understand you guys will go like camping or do other stuff. Like there's other alumni events. So how cool is it to look back and be like, man, you joined a program that a, a few seasons before you was 0 and 20. And now you have guys who want to spend weekends together. And it's not always about volleyball. It's just getting a bunch of cool guys together who want to hang out. Yeah, like that's almost the biggest thing I'll take away from playing at Waterloo is we're actually going next week. So we're going to Algonquin next week. So we do, this is our eighth or ninth year in a row where 10 to 20 alumni go out and canoe, um, drink some wine, hang by the fire, portage, all this kind of stuff, tell stories um, and fundraise money for the team. So I think we fundraise somewhere around like fifty thousand dollars the team so far over those years um and throughout that process like i've met some of my best friends that i have today who i never played with so like half the guys i hang out with um from waterloo are guys i never played with um we had a golf weekend um a couple uh, about a month ago with like 15 guys and a bunch of guys played in the doug haynes era and they came to my place and crashed over and stuff and telling stories about, you know, the pack and the bomber, which is the bar on campus and, and trips to Cuba with the team and losing to RMC back in the day and like all this kind of stuff. So it's really special like this alumni community and we're trying to just continue to bridge the gap to the current team. I know COVID has been kind of challenging with that, but this sense of community is, is just so special. And like I said, a lot of my best friends now are guys I never played with. Um, my first co-op job was because of a guy on the team who I never played with, like all that kind of stuff. It's just a really fun network. And like you said, a good bunch of guys. Um, so yeah, we're going there next week. So we'll see, we'll see what happens on this trip, but it's usually a fun time. Now, uh, obviously Shane is, is steering the ship there, but, uh, is this pretty alumni driven? Obviously like the head coach is probably aware and knows what's going on, but uh, I don't think you guys are adding to the workload of the program, right? Like this is pretty self-driven. Yeah, so so Taylor Hall, so Reed Hall's brother, older brother, he played at Waterloo. So he started this trip. He's like, I got an idea. Let's get the guys together. So he started the trip um, eight, eight, nine years ago. And then since then, I've taken it over uh, as the alumni president. But that basically means I send emails out saying, like, hey, we're, we're having a golf weekend. Who's in? Like, that's kind of what I'm doing. And, and Tyler Motherwell, uh, we call him Crusher, but Tyler Motherwell is a – a big part of the organizing, all this kind of stuff. So it's very much alumni driven, but it's, it's kind of like selfish. Like for me, it's like, I get to go hang out with a bunch of my best friends and go camp and play golf and whatever. So, and fundraise money is just kind of on the side. So it's just fun for everyone and it benefits the program and it builds these connections. Um, so yeah, it's just a great time and a great, uh, kind of alumni initiative. That's such a great explanation because I'm sure a lot of people are listening going, oh man, I wish I was this close with my alumni and I wish we had people to take a lead on this where like you're, you feel like you're benefiting so much from this that it probably doesn't feel like the extra work because obviously, I mean, you have relationships, you have work, you have uh, you coach club, like you're, you're a busy guy, but to do this, uh, it's worthy because you get to go hang out with your buddies and maybe you only get to connect with these people once or twice a year and it's worth sending a couple emails to do the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it really, like it is, yeah, it is isn't work. And, and we have like a core group of like five or eight of us that come to every single event. Um, and they're like comedians too, like Reed who, who might join us later. Like he just like, 
attracts so many people. Like, oh, Tuna's going, his name's Tuna. Tuna's coming out, I'm going to be there. Um, one year we had like a bunch of the old uh, um, Black Plague guys. So um, those guys came out one year to the alumni volleyball game. They had like 20 guys out from like the 80s or whatever. It was really cool. Like Fred Coops' crew. Um, so yeah, we have this like email list um, and guys pop in and out. But no, it's fun. And I, I've heard people say that even the women's team one time, they're like, hey, can you, like, how do you guys get so many guys out? And like, we just email and we keep in touch. And they're like, can you guys do that for us? I'm like, no, we're not going to do that for you guys. Someone has to take lead and you need that leadership, but it really isn't that much work. It's just, are people going to show up or not? And we have a good group of people that do. Amazing. Amazing. And just one more thing I had in my notes, just to check in again, just, I mean, you're an engineer by trade. You have friendships and relationships you got to keep touch of. Uh, you're doing so much that I just don't know how you find the time to do everything, but then add in that you're in the gym a couple nights a week coaching club and the team's buzzing, like back-to-back national champions. Uh, uh, what, what's in it for you? Why was it so important for you to give back and start coaching kids? So so I coached with James Evans uh, with the Scorpions many years ago, and like we just had a hoot like because James is like, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. And so it's just, and he's a volleyball guy. He's also a hockey guy kind of. So like just the chirps and, and, and the, the chatter and stuff was awesome. So that was a really positive experience for me coaching. Um, but it was like 13 new boys. And so a little bit different of a level that I, I kind of maybe wanted to get involved with. And then uh, Duncan, Duncan Cairns actually, other Waterloo uh, alumnus uh, asked me to come help out a couple of years back. COVID hit didn't really work out. Um, but then, um, needed my support again. He's got three young kids at home. So he had kind of left the coaching position and then Luke Snyder jumped in. Um, so Luke's nephews, uh, on our team. Um, and I guess what's in it for me is like the camaraderie and the, the team. So the coaching staff we have is, is, is amazing. And the guys on the team are good kids. Like we have no issues with attitudes and this and that. It's all about they really want to work hard and they really care about getting better and they really respect the coaching staff. So it's just it's just fun. And I'm an assistant coach, so Luke kind of has to do all the planning and maybe the serious talk. And I'm more of a little bit of like a bro with the guys. Um, so for me, my role is to you know help them get better in practice, but also maybe on the side joke around a bit and build some relationships that way. So going to tournaments with the kids and joking around and I just miss that from playing days. So for me, it's again, like selfish in the sense of like, I get a lot of joy from that and it's a ton of fun. Um, it's a lot of time, but it's, it doesn't feel that way because you're just so dialed in and you're so excited for all these kids and they're all getting so much better, um, as athletes, but also as humans, I think. So it's just, it's really rewarding. Yeah. Especially when you win at the end of the year, it's pretty pretty darn awesome so yeah that that's great man and and we share that i love being around teams and i love developing athletes and working with them but i think a big kick i get out of coaching is the people i get to coach with and uh i know when you and james were coaching together we would shoot some messages back and forth where you guys like to chirp the guys because uh it wasn't like in our era where you had to be like numbers one to 12 or one to 18. They could pick any numbers and you guys were chirping them about what hockey player they were, but it was, it was too obvious to say that somebody was like Chris Pronger, like a hall of famer. had to be like, no, no, that's Roman hammer. Like, or something. And I'm sure the kids were just yeah. like, who are these guys they are even talking about? Yeah, exactly. They just had no clue what was going on, but it was just like uh, an inside joke and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Hockey numbers are funny. And these kids have no idea. Like none of these guys watch hockey anymore. I don't get it, but um but no, yeah, the coaching staff is huge. Um, yeah, I don't know. Are you like, have you met Luke much? Have you worked with Luke much? Uh, we had him on the show. Obviously, he was a big fan when he was coaching the women's program at uh, Laurie, and he had a great episode with us and just learning about his story. But uh, no, I wish I could chat to him more. He seems like a good guy to be in the gym a couple nights of the week, right? Yeah, like just like outside of coaching, he's awesome. But like, um, you know, so when we go on to, to tournaments and stuff, it's a lot of fun. But just like, such a good mentor for me. Um, like just the way he runs practice, the way he communicates his philosophy on things, um, and how competitive he is. Like, he's kind of like a little bit of nice guy vibes, but like when he competes, like he competes, like I, which I maybe didn't see as much in water at Waterloo cause he was kind of an assistant coach, but I just love to see it. And when he plays against the kids too, it's just dig after dig after dig. And you're just like, how do you do that? Like nothing gets the floor. And, 
um, yeah, he's just a great mentor for me and uh, an awesome partner to, to coach with. So that's also a huge part of that team aspect and that camaraderie. So, Man, this has been awesome. Uh, one tradition we've tried to build into the show is just to tell a, a funny or unique story. So I was hoping you could just give us one more laugh before we let you go. I uh, I had to pull the guys. I, when he told me that I was coming on, I'm like, okay, I got to come up with a, a funny story. And there's a bunch of ones that maybe are like too inside jokey or this and that. Um, but the one that stands out, or one of them that stands out is in my second year, uh, Budo, a team from Japan, came to Ontario. Were you at York when they came to play with York, Josh? Yes, one of the Excaliburs, like early 2010, so call it 2012, maybe, or whenever they came that year. Yeah, yeah. So, that, yeah, so my second year would have been 2010, 2010. 2011, right around there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they were with you guys, and then, you know, Chris said, hey, we got this Japanese team coming. Uh, we need to host them and they need to live with us and whatever. Um, and I want to say there was like 25 of them. Like they were, it was a huge team. And what an experience it was. Like we got to watch them practice and coach walks in, sits down, two guys sprint towards him, untie his shoes and, and give him his court shoes. Um, then as they're practicing, their warm up was like an hour and then their cool down was like an hour. Like the practices were like three to four hours or something. And half the team, like 10 guys who were like the third and fourth string guys, like just mopped the floor the entire practice. So like the A and B guys would play and anytime someone would dive and sweat, guy would come in with a towel, mop it up. So they just continue to play. They shag and mop, shag and mop. Um, and then they'd get to play for five, 10 minutes at the end. So like, it was just incredible to see that these guys want to be a part of the team so bad that they're willing to shag and mop for three hours to play for 10 minutes. Um, and just the discipline and the defense that this team had, was incredible. We learned a lot as a young team from them. Um, and I remember one time a guy came in to practice wearing the wrong color shirt and his punishment was sitting in the stands for three hours with his arm up in the air. He didn't get to practice. He had to sit there for three hours to learn his, his lesson, I guess. Um, anyway, we had some, we had some games with them. Um, and we learned a lot about, you know, discipline and hard work just from seeing these guys. It was incredible. And then off the court, they didn't speak any English and none of us, none of us spoke any Japanese. So we would hang out and like try to communicate using, like they had translators. I don't even know if Google Translate was that prominent then. Um, so they had little translators and we were trying to do hand signals. But one of the nights we put on the movie Jackass and they're all like, oh, Jackass. Like, like that's something that's universal, like language aside. So we kind of, we bonded over that, like 20 guys in one house watching Jackass on a small screen. Um, but the funny story uh, that I'm getting to is at the end of this kind of training camp, um, we threw a party. Um, so my, my roommate, James, and I, we threw a party at our, our townhouse um, with our whole team, so about 15 or 18 of us, the 25, 30 Budo guys, and like a couple other like uh, girlfriends or whatever, but mostly just like 50 dudes in, in a house, um, you know, playing beer pong. And they learned, I think from the York guys, they learned social, like every once in a while someone yells social and, and have a drink or whatever. And it was the night before, it was a Sunday, it was the night before our next semester started, but it was a Sunday night. And everyone's had a couple of drinks, everyone's like kind of bonding and yelling and screaming and, and just, just having a time trying to communicate in, in you know, some sort of language. Um, and we get a noise, we get the cops show up because like there's 50 guys yelling social over and over <laughs> and over again at this townhouse on a Sunday night. And I remember just walking past the front door and looking at the cops, talking to my roommate, James, looking inside, being like exceptionally confused of like, why are there 30 Japanese men in this house yelling social? And like James was trying to explain to them, like, Hey, we're hosting this team. And like, we're just having a party and they're leaving back to Japan tomorrow, whatever. They ended up giving us a, a ticket for like 500 bucks, which is a lot of money for a student at that time. And what was special is the guys recognized it. Udo recognized it. So they pulled together a bunch of money and they left it in our refrigerator 
And we didn't know that. But as we said goodbye to all our guys, our buddies that we became close with over that week, they just showed us their translator. They said refrigerator. And we're all like, oh, yes, yes. You know, love you guys. Great trip. Stay cool or whatever. Like refrigerator, what does that mean? Like they must have typed in something wrong. We get home and like four hours later, James goes to the fridge and he's like, whoa, there's a bunch of cash in the fridge. And we're like, fridge, refrigerator. Like they were trying to tell us that they pulled together money to pay for our ticket. Um, and they left it for us, but they didn't want to give it to us. They want us to just find it later. Um, so James ended up having to go to court and fight that ticket a bit and whatever, but that's like a, a, another story. But in the end, we had this special week with a bunch of guys we couldn't speak the language with. And we had this ticket together and they paid for it. And it was just a, like a heartwarming, cool bonding experience um, without being able to speak the same language. So that's kind of like a, a funny slash interesting story that uh, I'll kind of remember forever, I think. Yeah, it's so cool that you bring that up. Uh, Max Paddock from Fraser Valley is just on the show. They actually went to Japan and they're training with them right now. And he's kind of like, what can we kind of expect here? And I was like, I have nothing but good experiences when they were with York. Because like you said, you don't speak the same language, but you kind of figure it out where you kind of have a, a common bond with volleyball. And they're all super nice, friendly people. They have no clue how to communicate with each other. But it, I don't know. It's just cool that people would figure out a way. And it's so cool to hear that they like supported you guys and, and pooled the money like that because I, uh, as special as that is, I can totally picture doing it because they were just so genuine and nice and so happy to be around. Yeah, just like so much respect and so much honor and discipline with 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 all those guys on that team. It was just uh, we definitely learned a lot as a bunch of like twenty year old guys of being like, wow, we're like entitled here. Like we need to go and work harder even so it was a great experience and it was a, it was a fun party and it was a fun scene for me to see like these cops being super confused. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of my, my, my PG fun story for you. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I know we got you on sharp cuts and I wanted to get your story out there for, for a while now. I think it's super impressive. We didn't even talk about all the other awesome stuff you did with, uh, hydrated world and all the other projects you've been around. So just being job to come back on the show later, but for today, I think I've taken enough of your time. Yeah, sounds good, Josh. It's good to catch up and uh, looking forward to seeing you again and uh, and chatting soon. And I have to be honest, I don't think this has ever happened on an episode before, but uh, Alex is tagging in fellow alumni Reed to tell some stories just about how uh, unique the previous era was at Waterloo, just to show uh, what Alex kind of helped build the program into and what Reed and some other athletes went through. But uh, Reed, taken away with a, a couple uh, stories that you went through as an athlete. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I, I can just say I have like a year's worth, um, obviously. Um, so, Josh, I don't know if you're f familiar with Fernando Pardo. Um, yeah, he's he's become fairly infamous, at least in, in our circles anyway. So he was the coach when I was in my first year, and then that was the only year that I had him. Um, and I don't know why, like, because he, he recruited me too. I, I don't understand why, but he hated me. He hated my guts. And I don't know why. I don't know whether it was a thing where he was like, I'm going to give this guy adversity and he will succeed, or whether or not he just wanted to torture me. But, um, but yeah, but in particular, he really just hated me specifically, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, so, like, when we're at practice, every time we had to do suicides, I had to do it twice. And uh, we had, of course, the Phantom Setter, which um, sometimes for our morning practices, not all of the players would show up because they would sleep in. And uh, I, of course, was at every practice, but he still hated me anyway. <laughs> And he used to he used to maybe be the phantom setter, so I would have to set for both sides. So he would <laughs> so he would line up six players on each team, and I would have to run under the net and set for both sides of the court. <laughs> like Josh, like are you starting to get a picture of, of this chaos? Like this is wild, absolutely wild. Um, so yeah, practices weren't fun for me at all, um, and then it only got worse from there. Um, but later on in the season, this is, this is the probably, this is the better story. Later on in the season, a lot of other bad stuff has happened. Maybe I can, I'll come on another time and tell you other stories. But um, there was a reason why I had to. We used to do like serve and pass at noon, like on game days. So there was a there was a very so long ago I forget the exact reason why it was something very serious where I had to miss the noon servant pass, but I was going to be there for the game. It was like, it was like a funeral, like a family funeral. It was, it was like a really serious event. 
and I couldn't go. And we had a Friday night game before, and he just like ducked out right after the game, so I couldn't tell him. But I told everybody on the team. I told the captains. I was like, "Look, guys, I'm going to miss serve and pass for this funeral. I will be there for the game. Everything's." And they're like, "Hey, everything's fine. Everything's cool." We have our team meeting, um, and everybody leaves the team meeting before the before the game starts. And he goes, oh, "Reed, I need you to hang back." And then he just reads me the riot act about missing servant pass that day. Little did I know that three other guys weren't there either, but for no reason. <laughs> um, and of course they didn't get yelled at either, but he's, he's like, you, you need to be here at all times. You're supposed to be a leader on the team. And then he, he goes to walk out of the room, which has no windows he turns back as if as if this were like the Godfather. He looks at me and he goes, "I can't believe you did this to me." And then he shut off the lights and he closed the door. <laughs> and I sat there for like five minutes in the dark, going, I, uh, "I don't know, I don't know what to do now." <laughs> I can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> can't believe you did this to me. <laughs> Oh, so none of this would pass in today's era. Like none of this would pass. Oh, so that, that was the most tame story of all that he, there, there are so many others. I, I don't want to ruin them all now, but they, a lot of the other stuff was borderline assault uh, and abuse, but, uh, but that's, that's a good PG 13. one. Yeah. And Josh, you're wondering like where, why the program was where it was um, like just these kinds of shenanigans and practice being do suicides while getting hit at or volley the ball to yourself while dodging his children was another one on the court. Um, uh, it was yeah. The best. He used, he did stuff at different net heights. He, he was, he was, <laughs> the guy was out of control. Uh, he, well, he definitely stole my wallet. Uh, we had a game at U of T and uh, late, late bus night, uh, ride home. And we stopped at, uh, like an on route or something like that to get some food. And we went in, uh, got off the bus, went in. I realized like, I got out of my wallet in my pocket. I was like, Oh, I must've fallen out on the seat. So I go back on the bus wallet's not there. It's gone. I was like, Oh, like maybe I left it in the change room. Like I don't understand what happened. Searched the bus, couldn't find it. Then I, I was like, okay, well I must've left my wallet at U of T. So I call the university it's not there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to cancel all my cards. I'm going to get a new driver's license. I called the bus company just to make sure they're like, no, we didn't find anything. Okay. Um, so this is, this is on a Saturday night and then it was the following Thursday. So I'd already paid to get all, like I got a new wallet. I paid to get all new driver's license and cards and everything. Thursday after practice, practice ends. Fernando Pardo, he, uh, he calls me, he's, he's always calling me after he dismisses everybody. Like, and this happened like three times a week. He's like, everybody leave except Reed. You got to stay. And I have to have a, a talk with you. And I'm like, okay, what's today's going to be. And he's just like, do you, uh, you lose something last week? I was like, yeah, my wallet. Like we've been talking about it the whole week. Like why? And he just out of his back pocket, he pulls my wallet out of his pocket and he hands it to me and he just looks at me and he goes, the next time you lose something, the first person you go to should be your coach. So he saw that my wallet was on the bus. He stole it to teach me a lesson. <laughs> uh, so Josh, so I, I'm like, yeah, I had to pay to get a new driver's license and stuff. Dude. Like, why didn't you tell me like on the day of, uh, so yeah, that's another, it's oh another great one. So Josh, I know you're, you know, you coach a lot. So here's some good tips for you to, uh, to apply, to, to help your, your, your athletes grow and yeah, learn. This is, this is all motivational and like, it really just made me a better player. <laughs> this is insane. Uh, like did he have assistant coaches too, that just like sat by and watched this stuff happen? Uh, well, we had two assistant coaches and neither of them were English speaking. <laughs> Uh, so we, yeah, we had a guy from France and then we had uh, a guy who was Russian as well. And neither of them really spoke any uh, English. So they, uh, they weren't really a part of it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a great year for everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, 
Good thanks, for thanks for coming on, Reed. I, I, I figured that the greater world would need to know about uh, Waterloo in 2007. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and the excellent coaching tactics that we had. But yeah, if, if you ever if you ever want to know if the Phantom Setter works, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Especially at an OUA level, that's wild. Everything this it's guy did really was insane. Way to, yeah, it's a really good way to get your setter clothesline trying to go into the net fast. 